You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Stick Together. This show is produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and recognise that this land has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thanks for tuning in to Stick Together. I'm your host, James Brennan. Stick Together covers workers' issues, union news and social justice stories and is broadcast to you from 3CR in Melbourne and across the community broadcasting network nationally. On this week's show, we're speaking with the Australian Services Union, ASU organiser Kerry Davies, about the Community Sector Fair Jobs Code and what it means for workers in the sector. Kerry, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Yeah, no worries. Great to be here. Thanks, James. I just thought, you know, we could start off a little bit about some of the, perhaps to set the scene for, you know, maybe people that are not as familiar with what some of the workers, you know, through the ASU, uh, you know, might do and, and some of the things that might lay the groundwork to talk about, you know, one of the main kind of things that we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, the ASU kind of works, I guess, across the community sector. I know it works with other you know, local government and other people within, you know, social community sector and, and things as well. But the sectors that was really like kind of largely impacted through COVID as many of the workers continued to kind of work in frontline services and other kind of support services. I wondered, you know, what kind of things you've noticed, and I know that you've worked in the sector as well. Like, so things like, you know, you noticed or heard from workers that like the impact that that's kind of had. Well, there's a definite link from COVID because actually the Fair Jobs Code campaign came from the ASU's COVID campaign, Essential, Not, as, not Expendable, because <clears throat> there was so much work still needing to be done but nothing being addressed around our job security, basically. And, you know, we, we were all considered essential workers, most of us, and, and had to keep working. So I, I was in the unique position of being a worker and a member and delegate during the COVID period and have now become an organiser at the ASU um, since then. I think that they're still linked because the, the things that were coming out of the meetings around the Essential Not Expendable campaign were job security but also pay was still a real issue. That's something we're going to have to keep fighting for, obviously. Nothing's perfectly resolved with this jobs code but it's certainly a really great result and step forward because, you know, if you count the Essential Not Expendable campaign, we're talking 
about three and a half years of campaigning all up, really, rather than just perhaps a year or so people might think this has been. How does like how does the advocacy to government work within the union to government? Because I know that, you know, before I'm sure we'll get into it shortly, but you know, yeah. this has kind of come this like fair jobs code has come with organizing advocacy to to the government. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that work True. looks like. Issues are raised by our members, you know, between themselves. And then obviously if there's something that's really deeply held and widely felt, it's something that will start coming back to organizers. There's a couple of different ways that organizers work. Um, mainly we've got sort of servicing organizers that help members with their individual or maybe some workplace matters. And then we've got campaign organisers that help with, still do some individual and workplace matters, but are focusing on things that can be used to galvanise a larger group of people or, or you know, the, the things that we find are being felt across the sector a little bit and we might be able to sort of go out to other organisations and say, well, look, the, your comrades over here uh, have told us about this, what's your experience? And then when you find that it's actually sector-wide, like um, the lack of job security, was coming up um, and this, this sort of casualisation of our workforce. If people weren't casual, they were getting put on fixed-term contracts um, rather than ongoing employment, which had been the norm for a long time in this sector up until sort of relatively recently. And then what we found was it, it sort of felt felt like an erosion of the wins from the equal remuneration order, the, the equal pay um, campaign that was a massive nationwide campaign led by the ASU several years ago now. And, you know, that, that won some really significant pay increases that were paid out over a really long period from about 2009 for, I think, around nine years. And they stopped, yeah, at around 2018. But every year community sector workers were getting an extra increase on their pay as well as the mid-year increase they were getting right at the end of the year. And then what we're finding is that as that happened, all of a sudden the ongoing employment wasn't there anymore that was being eroded. And also a lot of people's um, classification levels, the, the level of pay under the award that they're employed under, we were finding those things were being undercut at a lot of places. So those are the sort of two big complaints. There were probably three actually. And the third was the fact that across Australia, industrial relation laws are just so appalling, really. Um, there's so few rights for workers and particularly one of those is the right to dispute resolution. If you don't agree with something that's wrong in your workplace or, you know, if you feel as an individual there's been an injustice, you haven't been treated fairly or as a group um, of workers at a workplace, um, if you go through all the internal you know, grievance or dispute resolution processes that are available to you, and you get to the end of it and your employer makes a decision that you still don't agree with or think is right, that's it, really. That unless they agree voluntarily to then go further and have that arbitrated independently at the Fair Work Commission, they don't have to go. You can't force them there either. A better dispute resolution process, getting um, more secure work in an ongoing sense and making sure that we get classifications benchmarked but also clarified um, a lot better under the award because the award that we're under it's it's really broad really vague really general and a very very hard to sort of sometimes pinpoint down exactly where a level of pay should be and I think employers are really starting to use that to their advantage and, and they're sort of dropping what, what was seen as you know the common levels people were being paid in the sector 
um, that's certainly started to shift and it's shifting down. One of the workplaces that has, you know, been in negotiations at the moment, the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence have been involved in, um, you know, industrial action and they've had, I think, four days of strike action. And, you know, there's been some other workplaces as well that haven't necessarily gone out and strike, but have taken different action as they're kind of seeking to negotiate their enterprise agreement with their workplace. And it feels like the first time that I can remember in quite a while to see that kind of action within the community sector. It must be, you know, without even needing to talk about those kind of actions directly, I think as someone working in a union, that must be inspiring to kind of see workers be able to take that kind of action forward as they're trying to work alongside the work that you're doing in the union. Oh, absolutely. And our comrades of the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, I honestly, I'm not sure if it's a long time. I, for me, it's the first time I've ever seen any action like that in my working lifetime in the community sector. Um, you know, that really decisive, actually, like you said, it has been in call up around four days um, of strike action. It, when you mentioned about enterprise agreements, it's, it, it's really shocking that the community sector in Victoria, and I can only really speak about Victoria, I don't know the figures nationally, I might, might be similar, though, I'd imagine. Um, only um, 20% of organisations have enterprise agreements. The rest, 80% of community sector workers are working for organisations where they are only covered by the award and the national employment standards. Um, so, you know, that's really disheartening when we are a sector of workers that, um, you know, a lot of people do this work. We, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone could do it without a paycheck. But if you ask community sector workers why they do the work they do, there's, you know, a list of perhaps five, even ten things they'll say first before it's the paycheck. Um, and those reasons are often really altruistic and I feel like sometimes employers really play on that to sort of justify keeping wages down and keeping working secure by, you know, play, guilting workers, the workforce on the, that their, their own altruism and, and sort of saying, well, you know, if you, if you push too hard, that means we can't provide these services as, as well as we, we can. Um, and, you know, in the cases like the Brotherhood of Florence, the pay rise that they were offering to their workers was just absolutely appalling and they actually have um, millions of dollars in sort of, um, what's the word? It's not profit. They don't make profit. Um, but they have surplus. You know, they mm. literally have like about $80 million surplus, that organisation. They can afford to pay their workers as well as provide the great services to the community that their workers do on their behalf. Also a matter of sort of um, taking the side of your workers as the union, you know, does with their workers. Um, you know, instead of fighting against us, it would be great to see employers actually fighting with us and demanding better funding from the government and helping shore that up for their workers instead of complaining about that, sure, but then expecting the workers to take on all the risk and responsibility when those things don't meet the, the needs of the mm. sector. With the state Labor government that's you know been in power for quite a while now and also having a federal Labor government, you know, clearly they're not necessarily going to, you know, bring about socialism and, and solve all of the issues that we might have on the table. But I can't help but think that in this instance that, you know, it's playing a big part in the union actually being able to even come to the table to negotiate these kind of things around what workers are asking for, let alone to get something through like the jobs code. Is that something that 
seems to be have had like a big um, impact? I think so. I, but look, to be honest, I, I still put credit back on members and the work that people do. You know, even with that Labor government, it took three and a half years. Um, a jobs code was introduced for the private sector and we were left out. So we, we certainly didn't have anything handed to us by the, the state Labor government. Um, but that said, you know, now that this and that now that this has been put in place, it is also not legislated. So we're going to have to keep working. There's still a lot more work to be done around even this Fair Jobs Code on not just improving it, but also making it law, getting it legislated so that it can't be taken away in the future. But uh, you know, and it, but it, to give credit to the government, these things are in place and they are helping job security for Victorians. Um, but also at a federal level, yeah, like we have seen some of the biggest and best IR changes in a very long time. And I think, you know, I'll certainly give credit because another ASU campaign that was won earlier this year um, that obviously being from the family violence sector myself, I was really interested in and, and a small part of was the um, uh, family violence leave that's universal now in Australia, which is just such a fantastic piece of legislation that, you know, really helps a lot of really vulnerable workers um, and will keep people in work right when they need it, when it's literally life and death. So that's that was, you know, people might not see how amazing that kind of legislation is and hopefully it won't even cost employers that much because it's, you know, a rare occurrence at an actual workplace. But for those people that that is affecting, yeah, as you know yourself, it's having done similar types of work, it is huge, absolutely huge, because job loss as, as a part of escaping mm. family violence is really common, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so definitely um, another great campaign that comes from workers and the ASU, and that's been a really long, you know, the ASU won the very first family violence leave clause in an EA many years ago and the, with the, the local government down in Torquay, Surf Coast Shire, and that's, you know, but they've not let up and not only has it become just part of individual enterprise agreements, it's now become national law, so it's really fantastic. Well, I guess, you know, we've kind of been leading into now to talk about the jobs code and I think some of the things you mentioned before about, um, you know, the pay sector and things like fixed term contracts. And I think a lot of the time, you know, for workers that might be going through negotiation or, or even just speaking generally, you know, with their line manager or at their workplace with their colleagues about uh, trying to, you know, improve some of these things in their workplace. So the thing that often comes back is that this is government funding. It's for this program. There's no wiggle room in that. So I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit, um, you know, about what the jobs code looks like and and what kind of impact do you think it's going to have for workers in the sector? Well, essentially, we got two of our big three asks across the line with this. We, we've got um, a commitment and it's not it's not just a commitment. It's a comp- there's a compliance component, actually, which was sort of the fourth overarching um, thing that was ne- that we were really asking for. And that is that if you receive government funding, <clears throat> then you must uh, comply with the code. And that has been written into the code. We haven't got everyone included. It, it's a $2 million um, aggregate funding. So um, it, you, you don't have to be part of a, a program that is, that is funded by $2 million. If your employer um, receives aggregate funding of $2 million or more, then you're covered. It covers community sector workers. So it's not just the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing. It's um, pretty much, uh, you can almost safely say anyone who is being paid under the Social Community Home Care and Disability Services Award, the SHADS Award, um, are the workers who will be covered by this. 
Um, so as far as the um, dispute resolution clause goes, we didn't get um, the, you know, um, arbitration at sort of the commission level written into the code, but that is a federal structure. So that's a bit different. But what we did get was that things can be taken past your employer and dealt with um, by the department that provides the funding um, under their procedures. So it does sort of that extra step that takes you away from the employer just being able to say, right, well, we've gone through our internal process and we think what we've done is fine. Um, that's it. You know, you've, you've got nothing else open to you. Um, a complaint can then be taken to the department level and dealt with under their procedures. Um, and then also um, there's some really great um, wording in the code too about the use of fixed-term contracts and casual contracts and who can be employed and why. Um, and really it's been limited to um, what we're sort of calling real fixed term. So, for instance, jobs that are covering someone's extended leave, a backfill of a, a parental leave position, for instance, obviously that needs to be a fixed term contract. That's someone else's substantive role that they might be coming back with back to um yeah you know long service leave a work cover leave anything like that that's that needs to be fixed term and um pilot projects that are specifically defined in their funding that they are only a pilot project and that they you know once that funding ends that project ends so i know a lot of organizations perhaps use the the language that fund their funding you know is, isn't ongoing because funding does usually have say three to four year terms for most in you know lots of really core funding is only for three or four years um in victoria but the code really explicitly worded about if there's a reasonable expectation that that funding can roll will roll over there's an expectation that people will be employed in an ongoing way. Um, the other thing is that there is also money available to organisations to use if they need to pay out redundancies, which is obviously an expense that is incurred um, if if you do lose your funding and need to pay out workers who are on ongoing contracts rather than fixed-term contracts who aren't entitled to anything. Um, that's available at the state government level outside the organisation's own funding so they don't have to find that money either so that's not really a good excuse that they often use as well the other really fantastic thing that was announced on the same day as the fair jobs code sort of with the fair jobs code i suppose um because there's also obviously like i said it's really that campaign work on the ground that our members do that get things like this through and the, the getting members to talk to politicians with us being sort of that conduit in between but hearing real people's stories is always you know what convinces politicians about the need for things to happen um, but our really fantastic research and policy team um, did a lot of work on this campaign as well um, and part of what they did was successfully sort of make the case that um, because it is um, staff that are really the main asset of the community sector, obviously we don't make profit, we don't sell product, you know, all that sort of thing, but 80% of the funding that an organisation receives is spent on staff wages. Um, and what they announced was that 80% um, of funding that is now that is given to community orgs will now be indexed at the minimum wage rise every year. Previously, that was only ever indexed at 
CPI, Consumer Price Index, which has you know, been consistently lower. Um, it gets announced at the budget in May that this is how much the funding will increase and it will be by CPI. Um, but then, you know, we get to the end of June and the wage index and the wage increase is announced and that's been consistently higher. So that gap has been getting wider and wider um, and essentially eroding in real terms the funding that organisations have been receiving. So to, to know that that um, 80% of funding from now on in Victoria will be indexed with the pay rise rate means that those jobs can be secure. <clears throat> we don't have to cut jobs to meet these new conditions, essentially, which is another um, sort of furphy, but definitely a well-spread one that the employers were, were certainly using too because the employers really fought the jobs code, um, which is pretty disappointing, disgusting even, um, but a lot of them did. They fought it really hard. Um, so it's really, really great that that the union members really got this one across the line and, and just persisted for such a long time too. Um, it's such a dry campaign, like all this detail that I'm talking through, you know, to, to explain it to people. It's not a really easy march down the street going equal pay um, type um, campaign. So it, it's really a lot of um, a lot of kudos to, to the members that just kept working tirelessly on, on making the point over and over again and, you know, recruiting other people to that campaign and having those conversations in their workplaces and saying, well, you know, yes, it's happening, so let's let's do something about it. Let's you know, keep going and, and get this um, to happen. So I think... They're the, they're sort of the main the main things. Um, casual is also good too. Like, um, but we've got got really good casual conversion stuff coming in um, at a federal level as well. But where the Fair Jobs Code for Victorians um, really counts is on those fixed term contracts because a, a huge number of the sector are now on fixed term contracts. So we've got till August twenty twenty four to be out there in workplaces making sure that they're getting ready for this because it's not implemented till August 2024. Um, yeah, but after that, we'll certainly be in workplaces and going to the various departments if they're finding that places aren't being compliant. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things just to add to, you know, fixed-term contracts, and I think one of the things that, um, you know, perhaps the people that are not working it under those conditions that are not aware or, or just to highlight the kind of issue around it as well is that it's not just uh you know you're working and then gets to you know 11 months and you know a couple of weeks and then you get a new contract and and you know then it's another year I think you know for a lot of workers it, it might get to around you know eight or nine months and start thinking about well my contract's going to run out soon so will I start looking for another job I haven't heard anything yet um somebody said oh it should be okay so, okay, I'll listen to them for a couple of weeks and and then the, the worker starts thinking, maybe I should organise to have a meeting with my uh, line manager about that contract and then they start thinking about that. And so I think, you know, th all throughout, this can take months, I think, of, of a worker's, you know, one-year contract. And yeah. I think, you know, all throughout that time from a, a workplace perspective, they're not going to be as productive. You're not thinking as much about your, just the work you're doing. Um, you know, there might be other things where people are unsatisfied with the, the kind of responses that they might get, you know, and a lot of the time people look for another job and they might get an offer of something and go up, oh, maybe I should just take that job. And, and so it means then people are not staying at the 
the job that they want or the organization that they want to and that the organization generally wants workers to stay there as well because it's quite frustrating and annoying to train new staff all the time and costly and all of those kind of things so it's actually something that has a big impact you know I think all throughout for a lot of period of time for workers and the organization so I think it's it's a fantastic result to be able to work towards trying to you know alleviate that I think I guess the next steps of the campaign would be to convince all the workplaces to make sure that they're going to take it up and then try to get it into legislation. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the timing, because it comes in in August uh, 2024 and then they've said they'll review it in two years after that. So that timing will put us in another election campaign, <laughs> uh, which I think is great timing because that's when we'll be pushing for them to legislate it um, in the sense that we hope we can get it legislated before the next election, obviously, um, but also getting them to commit to at least legislating it might because this was also a campaign promise that we've had to then work nearly a year to um to to see it come out and be announced since the election um so they did take doing this code for the community sector to to the last election um so yes it, it'll still be years in the making actually this campaign it's certain not it's far from over and yeah i think that's a really good point too and uh, you know to make around you know the employers have got to be able to see the the advantages of of that loss of productivity um, and that high, what what the high turnover does to loss of productivity, and for the workers themselves, that stress of yeah, not having that that knowledge that you're going to have a job and, and having to do all that extra work on your own time of looking for work, and we know how heavy those applications are in our sector. Um, they take hours, honestly, each one. Um, and we really genuinely had people who had been sort of being rolled over on fixed term contracts for, you know. Not just four, but even you know seven, eight, nine, ten years, and couldn't get a mortgage, couldn't get a housing loan because the banks just can, didn't consider them insecure employment. Mm. Um, even though there's, you know, they're, they're probably really qualified and they probably weren't going to struggle to to find another job. It's just another thing that actually uh, was really disadvantaging people in our sector, and we had those genuine stories to Parliament. Um, you know, members that were willing to tell those stories to politicians, uh, I think it certainly helped get that across the line. Mm. Well, I think um, it's, yeah, it's a fantastic campaign. And, yeah, I think, Kerry, thanks a lot. We're going to have to wrap up in a second. But I think it's a it's a really great example of, and we spoke earlier about some of the industrial action that's been happening in the sector as well. It's a good opportunity to that, you know, any workers that are listening that, are you know working within the community services sector that you should um hopefully you're already a member of your union but you know Mm -hmm. maybe for whatever reason that that membership might have lapsed is a good chance to to join and to find within your workplace you know things can start small with a couple of you talking about some of these issues and you know i know that um kerry and other organizers uh have got some opportunities that can come to your workplace and talk about what the jobs code might look like for your workplace and maybe answer some questions and you know there's of course like members hotline and things like that if people do have questions specifically about their union and and um sorry their workplace from the union about 
things that they might want to get answered. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Kerry. And it was really great to, uh, particularly as a work to, worker in this sector, to hear a lot about what's happening here. And uh, it sounds like there's still a little bit of work to do, but it's an exciting time to be a member of the ASU. There always is, and it always is, I think. <laughs> Thanks, James. Yeah, really good to be on. And yes, join your union. <laughs> and if you're not sure which branch of the ASU you belong to, if you're listening outside Victoria, ring our head office. There's a national branch. Thanks, Carrie. And you've been listening to Stick Together, and I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Stick Together with your host, James Brennan. And to finish the show this week, I'm playing a song originally a Bob Dylan song, but this is from Cat Power's new album. It's her album called Sings Dylan, and they're all Bob Dylan tracks, and this one is called She Belongs to Me. Until next time, stick together. Everything she needs She's an artist She don't look back She's got everything She needs She's an artist She don't look back She can take the dark Out of the nighttime And paint the daytime black You will start at standing proud to steal her anything she sees. You will start out standing proud to steal her anything she sees. But you will wind up peeking through a keyhole down upon your knee. She never stumbles, she's got no place to fall She never stumbles, she's got no place to fall She's nobody's child, the law can't touch her at all An Egyptian ring It sparkles before she speaks She wears an Egyptian ring It sparkles before she speaks She's a hypnotist collector You are walking empty
Sunday Salute her when her birthday comes Bow down to her on Sunday Salute her when her birthday comes Halloween by her trumpet And for Christmas by her a drum listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.